0: Celebrate the progress that you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com Curiosities today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Curiosities. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Scientists will tell you that it was George Lemaitre who first coined the idea of an expanding universe originating at a single point a point he referred to as the primeval atom. This theory came about in the year 1927, and just two years later, Edwin Hubble confirmed that the universe and the galaxies within were indeed drifting apart. But what if I were to tell you that Lemaitre was not the first to propose such a theory, or that the first person to do so was actually better known, someone perhaps a little more grounded in science than we might think? Known far and wide as one of the greatest writers to have ever lived, This poet and storyteller also dabbled in the sciences. And it's within that world, rather than literature, that we can find one of his lesser-known works. He himself categorized it as a prose poem, but it has more or less confounded people for years. He called it Eureka, after the legendary exclamation uttered by Greek inventor Archimedes after he discovered a method for testing the purity of gold. This work of nonfiction clocks in at a healthy 40,000 words, and it was actually the last bit of writing this man composed, just before his untimely death. After spending years composing it, he ended up delivering it as a speech on a blusty winter night in front of an audience of about 60 people. Yet it remains one of the most curious works of an already curious writer, given the incredible scientific merit found within it, despite its sheer lack of scientific proof. Among the massive theories contained within this work of genius are theories of what happens to the soul after the body dies, and how all things are composed of the same materials—the body, the spirit, and even the cosmos—and that at the end of everything, all consciousness will collapse into a singular mass. Now, if that sounds in any way convoluted or out there, rest assured that it has been analyzed and cross-analyzed in the years since his death, And let's say that there is much more merit in this fantastical work than you might expect. All throughout his life, this writer explored the ideas of life after death, so it's not all that outlandish to think that he explored them in a more scientific capacity as well. Oh, and there was one other major theme that he explored in his final piece, a theme that George Lemaitre got credit for coining in 1927. You see, it was in Eureka that we first hear about the possibility of an expanding universe, a theory that, according to modern science, didn't exist until 1927. Yet, here it was, written out on the page 80 years earlier, in 1848. And he saw beyond just the expansion as well, proposing that the universe expanded and contracted like massive eternal heartbeats, something that science has found evidence of in the decades since. Yet this particular man is rarely mentioned in many conversations about the cosmos. Critics of Eureka have complained that while he did touch on many scientific ideas that are all but accepted today, he did so without any scientific backing whatsoever. No proof, which apparently discredits all of those truths entirely. But while many question the scientific merit of his piece, the author himself never did. He referred to it as his greatest work, and rather modestly said that his proposal was more important than the discovery of gravity. In fact, upon completing it, he told his mother-in-law, I have no desire to live since I have done Eureka. I could accomplish nothing more. And true to form, he died the following year, barely 40 years old. Whatever the case, even if he hadn't already proven himself something of a genius for his groundbreaking writings in the world of horror and the macabre, this crowning exploration of the universe. Sets him apart from his contemporaries forevermore. And the name of this writer turned man of science? Edgar Allan Poe. Conservation is so important to the survival of our planet. From preserving our natural resources to rescuing the animal kingdom, we need to do all we can to save what remains after generations have lost. Deforestation, climate change, and the Industrial Revolution have all decimated countless acres of land, spewed smog and chemicals into our air, and forced thousands of species to go extinct. Many of the animals that have survived, though, have done so by adapting. After World War II, for example, American soldiers returning home were getting married and moving out of the city to raise their families. Mass housing was being built in previously undeveloped areas, along with shopping centers and highways. In other words, the end of World War II led to the beginning of the era of the suburb. And with it came the destruction of millions of habitats across the United States, which either pushed out or wiped out the animal populations that once lived there. But one of the most prominent areas where development affected the local animal population happened to be McCall, Idaho. McCall had been established in 1889 by Thomas and Louisa McCall. For over 50 years, it was home to a few major industries, including lumber and mining. Over that time, McCall drew all kinds of people to work and play there. Recreational sailors enjoyed taking their boats out on the lake. And the turn of the century saw an explosion of tourism brought on by new hotels and resorts. But after World War II, McCall became a hot destination for married couples and entrepreneurs looking to settle down. Newlyweds flocked there to build homes and start families, while business owners from the northern town of Lewiston came to open lodges, doctor's offices, and social clubs. Now, while all of this expansion brought a lot of money to the town, those who were already living there weren't very happy about it new construction had infringed on the habitats of McCall's native beaver population. With nowhere else to go, and maybe a bit of resentment, the beavers began taking their anger out on their new neighbors. They started cutting down trees with their sharp teeth, not caring where those trees fell. The dams they built wound up flooding yards and destroying crops. After all, just because humans have moved into their territory didn't mean the beavers were going to stop being beavers. Naturally, the new homeowners and business owners wanted them gone. Idaho's Fish and Game Department took up the call. They didn't see the beavers as annoying rodents with a vindictive streak. They knew the animals served a very specific purpose within their ecosystem. They helped improve the quality of the water in streams and brooks. They created habitats for other creatures. And they were responsible for keeping the wetlands, well, wet, Fish-and-game employees wouldn't kill them, no matter how much the town's residents wanted them to. Instead, they decided to move all 76 of the offending beavers elsewhere. They'd done it before, back in the 1930s, under similar circumstances, but the job was tough on both the people transporting them and the beavers themselves. It started with the beavers being trapped and boxed before getting loaded onto a truck. That truck would then take them to a conservation officer, who would watch them overnight then load them onto yet another truck, and that truck would carry the boxes to a nearby area where the beavers would be released, at which point their carriers would be fastened to horses and mules and hauled the rest of the way. Many beavers didn't survive the journey due to intense heat and dehydration. Also, the pack animals didn't love carrying angry beavers, because who would? So it was up to Idaho Fish and Game employee Elmo W. Heder to figure out a better way. First, he designed special boxes in which to carry the beavers. They were wooden, with holes drilled in the side, and they would open when they touched the ground. He also had the perfect new home ready for them, in the Chamberlain Basin, 200 miles away. But that was a long haul, and it wasn't really accessible by truck or car. Even using mules and horses would have been really tricky. So instead, he used an abundant resource that was left over from World War II. Parachutes. Yes, Elmo Heder wanted to parachute the beavers into Chamberlain Basin. And he did it. And after a series of tests with an older male beaver, he put his plan into motion. On August 14th of 1948, Heder filled eight crates worth of beavers and transported them by plane over the basin. Almost every beaver made it, save for one who chewed his way out of the box while still 75 feet above the ground. But once the rest safely landed, Their boxes automatically opened up, and the beavers were free to start living their new lives. Oh, and that older beaver that Hedder used to test his new box design, he gave it the perfect name. Geronimo. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com.